Joe Rosenfield. You've heard the name. But how well do you know the man who helped guide the college from a precarious existence and meager endowment to the thriving institution it is today? We could take it slowly Or we could get insane No one ever got anywhere By playing it safe This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On today's show, an interview with George Drake, president and professor emeritus and all-around phenomenal person about another Grinnell legend, Joe Rosenfield, perhaps the single most impactful figure in Grinnell College history. Step aside, J.B. Grinnell. It's all Joe Rosenfield. Coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. A week before he died, Joe Rosenfield finally, and only reluctantly, gave the college permission to name a building after him, and his name now dons the central building on campus. We also have the Rosenfield Program in Public Affairs, International Relations, and Human Rights. Those are both a big deal, but that doesn't even begin to capture the impact Rosenfield had on the college. People know about Warren Buffett and his role in growing the college's endowment, but the only reason Buffett joined the board was because of his friendship with Joe. And Joe was a superb investor in his own right. Most students walk through the Rosenfield Center almost every day during their time in Grinnell and are almost certainly impacted by his legacy. But do people know Joe? Well, I sent my trusty podcast comrade Gabriel Schubert over to the building named in his honor to find out. I gotta ask you a question. Oh my god. I'm here on site with the podcast for all things Grinnell. Oh no, why did I do this to myself? Brenda, what can you tell me about Joe Rosenfield? You know, he was good buddies with my tutorial prof. Who was your tutorial prof? George Drake. Amazing. George Drake wrote a book about him. Other than that, I just know that J- the JRC is named after him. There you go. Yeah. Um, according to that sign outside of the Spencer Grill, he said something about how horses couldn't drive him out of Grinnell, and I think that's pretty beautiful. Horses couldn't drive me out of Grinnell either. He's related, I think, to Louise Noun, who's a Local feminist, has a collection of art at the Des Moines Art Center. Women's art. Yes. She's cool. What a cool family. I know absolutely nothing about Joe Rosenfield other than that his name is on this building that we were standing in. Um, I know he was friends with Warren Buffett, and they got us a lot of money for our school. Um, I know he was a student here. I know he worked for the Scarlet and Black. And I also know he became a trustee after he was a student here. And that's it. Tell me, what do you know about Joe Rosenfield? Actually? Okay, well, he's from Des Moines, Iowa. Um, he went to Grinnell. He majored in poli-sci and history. What else? Uh, he lived in Langan for four years. He, he worked for Yonkers after school. He was part of the SMB. He was part of the Cyclone and then a Huber magazine. What else? He... He was one of six Jewish people at Grinnell College uh, at the time he went here. Um, He felt like this was one of the few places that he wasn't affected by anti-Semitism. Okay, that's enough. Someone obviously read the book, so congrats. You spoiled the entire podcast episode. Jerk. Okay, now that you've got the spark notes on Joe, let's get to the real thing. To fill in the gaps, I brought in George Drake, who just finished up writing Joe's biography. In George's estimation, Joe left as big a mark on the college as anybody. 
His lifelong love affair with the college can be quantified through his financial impact, but there's so much more to Joe's story than his investing acumen, and his reach spreads far beyond Grinnell as well. We took some time to talk about the 1925 grad and longtime trustee and his legacy at Grinnell. But first, we have to start when Joe arrived, his first year at Grinnell. I entered Grinnell in the fall of 1921, not knowing exactly what I'd find there. But after I'd been there about three weeks, I'd fallen in love with the place, and you couldn't have driven me out of there with a team of horses. I just took to Grinnell right away. Whether Grinnell took to me, I don't know. <laughs> and that last quote there about driving him out with the team of horses is inscribed on the building that now bears his name on campus. So outside of this and a few other remarks that are dispersed throughout the book, we don't have much telling us why Joe fell in love with Grinnell the way he did, at least not in his own words, because he wasn't necessarily one to write about himself or focus on himself in any way, really. But in writing this book, what could you discern as far as why Joe became so enamored with Grinnell? Well, there, there are probably a lot of general reasons, but the thing I think is the key is Joe was Jewish. This was the 1920s, uh, Ku Klux Klan days. Uh, prejudice was pretty rampant in our society. And he was from a very well-to-do and a comfortable family, really, uh, in Des Moines. So I think within the bosom of the family, there were lots of relatives around. Uh, he felt very, uh, you know, loved and protected. But out in society generally, I think Jews were pretty well marked. And there were, when Joe came to Grinnell, about six Jewish students. So he didn't have, you know, a, a large right. sort, sort of group that he not a lot of people cling to. But Grinnell had no fraternities and sororities, and I think it was one of the more open environments, maybe where in the nation, maybe for a Jewish student. One of the evidence of the, of that is that the college in those days had literary societies, which were the closest thing to selective fraternities. In other words, students were selected by the, uh -huh. the membership. And Christomatia was the most prestigious of these literary societies. It actually started back in the Davenport days of the college. And Joe was, was invited to Christomatia in his fall of his freshman year. That When I saw that, it just hit me between the eyes. This is mm -hmm. really something. I'd always suspected that one of the reasons for Joe's love affair was that maybe for the first time in his life, in a, outside of his family, he felt completely accepted, mm. not marked off as a Jew, and uh, that, that had to make a big difference. Clearly, that you know, there are other things. Uh, we had a lot of literary uh, work on campus. It was probably stronger even than it is today. Hmm with lots of, of things going on, magazines and so on, this humor magazine that he was business manager of for three years uh, was an example of something much more posh and slick than anything we produce at, on campus now. Uh -huh. Sold all over the Midwest. The, the uh, S&B came out twice a week, so there's lots of opportunities for writing there. The Cyclone was a big deal then, but much more than today, the annual. He, and he invested himself early in all of these. Mm -hmm. So he had 
something that he really enjoyed doing. He was not himself an athlete, loved athletics, and athletics were big at the college. Yeah. They were, we were in the Missouri Valley Conference team, big-time football, basketball, track. We were known as the greatest little track school in the West. <laughs> we were really good. We had, uh-huh. And we had he, Morgan Taylor at that yeah, time. That's right. His, 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 he, entering Joe, with Joe was Morgan Taylor, who's the only Olympic champion we've ever produced at the college. He won the 400-meter hurdles at the 1924 Paris Olympics. And so Joe knew him well. Uh-huh. Uh, interestingly, right across the hall from Joe in Langen Hall was Gary Cooper, <laughs> uh, known as Frank in those days, uh-huh. who was at the college for two years. And Joe, Joe knew him pretty well, although he said he was kind of a recluse. He kept to himself a lot. Uh-huh. So, you know, it was... It was, I think, intellectually exciting for him, though he he doesn't have a lot to say. He, said, if you, you know, he was sort of cynical about the academic life of the college. He would say, we had one or two good professors that he could remember. <laughs> he, he didn't go on and on about all these wonderful faculty contacts. Uh-huh. What counted for him was his, were his peers. Yeah. As often, you know, you would say that's what count for Goodell students now. I mean, yeah. as, as good as our facilities are, as good as the faculty, maybe the most important thing is the other students. Yeah, the relationships that yeah. you make during your time here. It is interesting you talk about um, maybe the lack of, of anti-Semitism, and I know you did still find some evidence of, you know, uh, anti-Semitic jokes in various publications throughout Joe's time, but in general, you know, that that atmosphere of acceptance was something you found. But it's interesting that Joe wasn't really a religious person, even though he was no, he raised in a very Jewish family, but not in necessarily the religious sense. I think he went to Sunday school and 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 was brought up certainly knowing that he was Jewish, um, but, you know, didn't absorb it into a part of his life in a religious way. That's right. Um Elaine Steigner, who ran the Jewish Federation for years and years, I interviewed her, and she found Joe troublesome because um, he wasn't contributing as she thought he should to various Jewish Jewish causes, mm. and he was definitely not a Zionist, definitely uh-huh. not a Zionist. So he didn't support and send any money to Israel and so on. Um, I, I think the way he conducted his life was not as a Jew. I mean, he he. Some of the um, sort of parts of Jewish culture were, it def- definitely influenced him, but I don't think he was self-consciously thinking as a Jew uh-huh. and didn't go to temple. He did support the temple. Uh, he did make contributions, I think, every year. And he did did make contributions to the Jewish Federation, but not anything. I mean, here was the greatest philanthropist in Des Moines, right. and yeah. he's just sort of an uh, average supporter of, of things Jewish. Yeah, yeah, it's notable in that respect. So you were talking about his involvement in student publications, um, which you noted took up a great deal of his his time and focus, and maybe maybe because of that, but maybe just in general, he was he was maybe just a middling student, decent, <laughs> De- decent. You know, and at Iowa, he was a top student at Iowa uh, Law School. Uh huh. We all know there are certain points in our life when we sort of catch fire intellectually. And yeah. He caught fire intellectually at Iowa. He really loved the study of law. He he had lots of good things to say about the law professors at Iowa. So there's where he narrowed his focus to his academic life, planning to become a professional lawyer, and took that very seriously, and I think was excited by his study of the law. His, his um, 
so-called godson, really. Fred Little said he didn't think Joe thought like a lawyer because hmm. he thought he would do things instinctively rather than analyzing everything. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, as I thought about where he spent his time, I doubt he studied a lot. <laughs> when did he find time to do it? Because it, these publications were very time-consuming, what he did there. And then he kept saying, you know, I would go out and watch practices, football. He said, I don't think I ever missed a sporting event at Grinnell. At one point, some of his friends and he went down to Columbia, Missouri for the Grinnell University of Missouri football game. So he even traveled, to yeah. take, at least on one instance, maybe others that I, I didn't track down. And, I, and you would know if you, if you actually go out and watch practices, <laughs> you're taking a lot of t- yeah. time away from it. So um, he he had no academic difficulty at Grinnell, but he um, I've never I haven't seen his transcript, so I'm just sort of going <laughs> by self-reported uh, Joe's self-reporting, and uh, he was he was pretty much an average student at the college. Uh-huh. So it wasn't it wasn't the intellectual atmosphere at Grinnell that really captured him. Uh-huh. Although these publications were pretty pretty I mean they were intellectually challenging. Yeah, um, and also they kind of show. Uh, maybe not the beginnings, but maybe the the honing of his sense of humor, um, which is something that you kind of trace throughout his life and that a lot of people note about him. And, I mean, even the column in the S&B was a pretty pretty humorous column. Um, and some of the humor as I was reading the book kind of went over my head, <laughs> admittedly, but I, I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, the, he, he and his, his friend, good friend Bob Fell had it. Weekly column. There were two two newspapers a week, but they only were in one of them each week. Called Doric, a column of pure beauty. Right there is a pretty clever uh, use of words, and uh, they, they were just they were commenting on what was going on on, on campus or I- in town. Two two banks closed in town, and there was a tough time economically, and they had lots of humor around what was really kind of a tragic events for folks. Uh-huh. Um, Joe was even poked fun at a at a fundraising campaign, which is kind of ironic given what he did for the college with respect to fundraising and so on. But anything was fair game for for, the, for those two, and that's sort of typical of college humor. And the one that probably he might subsequently have regretted the most. I I, I mean I didn't never heard him say this or anything, but. Uh, they had a running joke about the girl in my English class uh-huh. who always says dumb things. Yeah. really just uh, totally clueless. And uh, wh- who could get away with that today? Yeah. I mean, that, that would be a classic sexist, misogynist kind of stuff. He was not, in later life, he was a great promoter of women and, and women's rights and so on in later life. And the chief supporter of Planned Parenthood. So he... Uh, women later, women, women really loved Joe because not only because he was funny and fun to be with, but he was really fighting for women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what we are as undergraduates is not always what we are later. Certainly. So Joe kept writing for school's publications and then had a, a grand effort to publish the, the Cyclone almost single-handedly as a junior. And you say in the book that maybe one of his lasting contributions as a student Maybe that he kind of saved the cyclone. Yeah, that the uh, the editor, and it's not ever really explained in the material I saw. A, at least a month, maybe longer than that, just sort of gave up. <laughs> 
Joe was the business manager, so he had an instrumental role in the success of the Cyclone, but he wasn't the editor. And what he did, he just stepped in and said, you know, we've got to get this out. It's an important publication. The current, the senior class deserves it. The, the juniors did the Cyclone. And so uh, the, the Cyclone would bear the, the year of the juniors who produced it rather than the seniors who had graduated. Right. So it was a sort of a year behind in terms of, its, uh, of what it represented. And so he went, the, the uh, printer was in Iowa City, so he went over to Iowa City. He said he spent two full weeks in Iowa City <laughs> with the printer getting the thing out. So uh -huh. he, he saved that particular issue of the cyclone. It's a, it's a good cyclone. There, th those were good college annuals in those days. You could not see a publication of the college. If you go over to the, to the Iowa room, and, and we've got all those there, that was, you couldn't see anything that wasn't pretty professional. They, mm -hmm. they were good. Yeah. So then he graduated in, in 1925 and went on to law school and then worked at a law firm in Des Moines. And we're skipping a lot of good good information here, but um, you know he ends up joining kind of the family business in Yonkers as well. That's correct. Um, and you talk about that as a not only Joe contributing to the culture of Yonkers, but him also being really a product of that culture and not having known anything really about the business before and kind of yourself as well. You went on this journey researching. You learned a lot about, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the ethos of the Yonkers family and how that influenced Joe. Yonkers was the creation of four different department stores, uh, most of which had begun out in the provinces of Iowa, we would think. In the case of Joe's family, it was Oskaloosa, just south of Grinnell. And these Jewish families actually begun as peddlers and then t turned it into a store. And uh, then they decided this new capital city out there in the middle of the state, uh, Des Moines ought to have a branch. The branch obviously then eventually absorbed the whole business for these four families. And by 1927 and 28, all these four families had joined into one department store under the name of Yonkers. And Yonkers was probably at that time the strongest of, of the four, but almost equal was was um, Harris Emery store, which was the one that the Frankel family, which was Joe's, Joe's family, mother's side, yeah. mother's side uh, owned. Anyway, they end up with the premier, the really strong department store in Iowa. And Joe's family owned half of Yonkers. Joe's father was the representative in the business, but he died in 1929, just a year after Joe out of, got out of law school, and Joe inherited his father's position on the board, so he's instrumentally involved from 29 on. But in 1948, he joined Yonkers full-time, soon became chair of the board, was chaired the board for 20 years, and was the one who superintended the spread of Yonkers department stores around Iowa and, and nearby states. That was his main contribution. The culture, and that was really what you asked me about, Yonkers had a wonderful culture. They were, they looked after their associates. They, they taught their associates civic virtue. They would close the store until 10 o'clock or 11 in the morning on election day, so mm -hmm. their so our associates could go and vote. Uh, they established, uh, you know, rec uh, 
intramural various sports leagues for their <laughs> associates. Had a big bash at Christmas time in the KRNT Theater, which is the big theater in Des Moines at that time, to bring in outside entertainment, national, international entertainment for them. Monthly and weekly publications that would instruct their their associates about the character of what how, what they should do as as salespersons, as uh, retailers. Uh, the responsibility they had to their customers uh, had a very liberal um, exchange policy. If you didn't like what you got, you uh-huh. bring it back, et cetera. <laughs> and they were the biggest uh, purchasers of war bonds during World War II and just on and on and on. It was a culture that, that was internally very strong but outward-looking. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of emblematic of Joe. He was internally very strong and outward-looking. And I had no idea until I did the research for this book that how much I could conclude that the Yonker culture contributed to who he was. Uh-huh. It was just part of this. It was where he grew up. Yeah. So rewinding a little bit, during this whole time while Joe is is working at a law firm and then back at Yonkers, he's still involved with the college and he he comes back around and eventually joins the board of trustees how did he kind of come back towards his involvement with the college well I, he um i think it went before he became a board member was sometimes offered legal advice to the college it was so he was had some connection but not a strong connection to the college but then uh his uh very good friend if i forget I think it was Fred Little as well, who had been in school with a little ahead of him in school when they were students, who was chairing the board, asked Joe if he would join the board, and Joe did. This was in November of 1941, about a little little less than two weeks before the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. So he walks into a very critical time in higher education generally, and Grinnell in particular, when they soon begin to lose male students hand over fist and drop from around 800, 800 plus enrollment down to 400 or so. And how's the college going to survive? So Joe lived through that period. And of course, one of the survival techniques of colleges like Grinnell was to get an officer training program, which they Uh did get. And about, you know, about a thousand, eight to a hundred to a thousand military people on campus for about two, Two, two and a half years. I did not realize until getting into the research that they collapsed these programs about the time of the Normandy invasion because they could see we were going to, both in the Pacific and the European theater, we were probably going to win and we wouldn't need all of these officers. And it uh-huh. took, took almost two years to produce the officers. Uh-huh. So then they get a, they, about a year and a half on a college campus and then go to, go to officer training school and so on. So it's good two years to, for them to get into the field. And they were right. We were out of the war by 46 when these folks would have. So, again, the college is fighting through that period. The war isn't over yet when they don't have those military people around to pay bills. So Joe was part of that process. But the critical thing that happened was that Joe took a really hard look at our endowment when Uh he joined and uh, calculated that it was worth about $78,000. Yeah. And that is pitifully small. <laughs> and it was, consisted of the dormitories, which are included in the endowment at that time because they produce revenue, but they have larger expenses, actually, than revenue. 
and farms, which some years made money, some years not. But it wasn't unusual for the total profit from the farms to be under $50,000 in a year. He recognized this college would not survive without an, a much better endowment. And so he set about to um, make that happen. The college did not have audits in those days. Joe was responsible for the uh, college entering an audit, audit process. The then treasurer of the college, a man named Louis Phelps, was not only treasurer, he ran buildings and grounds, he was the secretary of the board, and he had a secretary, is all, all the help he had. Uh-huh. He was not an accountant, and when we had, it was actually Arthur Anderson that did the first audit, and it was a mess. <laughs> and poor Louis, who was a mainstay of the college, I can't tell you how many people respected him, He's going to resign because, you know, I've just screwed everything up. Uh-huh. No, the college said, please stay, and they went out and hired a controller, added one person to actually keep the books. So Joe was responsible for us sort of straightening out our finances so we actually knew what was going on. He also was pushing very hard for us to sell farms and buy securities. So uh-huh. he's doing the early steps needed in order to begin to secure this financial future of the college. But that took a long <laughs> time. Uh, I was a student in the 1952 to 56. Joe was chair, only chaired the board once from 48 to, 48 to 52, so he just finished chairing when I came in as a student. And at that time, the college was borrowing money at almost every board meeting, <laughs> and usually just to, just to meet payroll. Yeah. And, you know, the administrators were going off sometimes overnight trips to some Chicago or somewhere to get alone and, and try to persuade someone to support the college. Fortunately, for not for the person, but for the college, Fred Darby, who was the wealthiest of the trustees, died in around 1953, I think it was. And uh, he left the bulk of his estate to the college. Yeah. And that was uh, oil and gas revenues. And the college didn't sell them, it just used them as a steady supply of income and probably saved the college at that point because Joe's uh, efforts were not yet really yielded as much as was needed. Yeah, but um, even when when Warren Buffett joined the, the board at Joe's insistence or request in in 1968, the endowment was only about 10 million dollars. They built it up to that in in 68. College is prospering very well under under Howard Bowen's presidency, and so it was really doing well. But they were still. I mean, they had to borrow uh, over the summer to p- make payroll because tuitions don't come in until September, uh-huh. August or September. So from a January is the last tuition they get until the following August or September, they're living off of that tuition, and it wasn't enough to get them to the summer. So they'd still, in those days, borrow money to get through the summer. Yeah. Um, so it, it just took a long time. But once once Warren and Joe got to work together, then it really began to take off. Uh-huh. But it was a certainly a precarious time for the college, and right around when you come into the story as a student at the college, you said that if the college would have died, it probably would have been while you were a student. And you know, we talked a little bit about the financial situation, but there was also some other turmoil at the college at this time, which really had an impact on Joe's relationship with the college as well. Can you talk about the? The incident that occurred with President Stevens. That's probably the most explosive thing in the book. Hot Uh, takes from George Drake. (laughs) Yeah. And um, 
Sam Stevens became president in 1940 and then finished in 1954. So 14 years. He was, I think, the second longest-serving president uh, besides Maine Uh, and the college's history and was an enormously successful president in the first six to eight years of his tenure. Uh, Got us through World War II, out of the Depression and so on, and uh, did it effectively. And he did it partly because he was a very decisive, strong leader. But this morphed into being a really imperial president. Uh They hired 60% of the faculty when the veterans come back from uh, under the GI Bill after World War II. They go from you know, four or 500 students up to 1,200 students, and the trustees are very nervous about this. We're yeah. way too big, but when are we getting back to normal? Um, and he hired some good faculty. Obviously, faculty helps in the firing process, but he would go, for uh, uh, for example, Joe Danforth, who was sort of icon of the chemistry department. Sam calls up the University of Wisconsin chemistry department and says, who's your best graduate student? Uh, Joe Danforth, we'll hire him, he said, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and, and Joe was a great, great, great chemistry professor and helped a lot to build the department to where it is, this wonderful department that we have in chemistry. But these people he hired after World War II were really pretty good, and they were the kind of faculty members who were not going to let the president run them around. Uh-huh. And so a cadre of faculty became vociferous opponents of Stevens, and uh, so there was a lot of, I, I, as a student, I knew that. Uh-huh. I knew there was contention. Okay. And there would be mysterious firings over the summer. Some of the best faculty would disappear. And hmm. Stevens hired some of the best and fired some of the best <laughs> uh, faculty. So that's, that's a, a one level, of a, sort of an on-campus feeling. But the college needed to build a new science building after World War II. I mean, science had so exploded during the war that, Old facilities just were not adequate to the doing of, quote, contemporary or modern science. And almost every liberal arts college in the country was building a new science building. Uh Grinnell was among them. Uh, But that was a million-dollar building, which doesn't sound like much today, but it was by far the most expensive project, uh, building project they'd ever had. Stevens has the obligation, as all presidents do, to go out and get that money or, or superintend the process of getting it. And they weren't getting a million needed, at least, they knew. And he's raised maybe 500000 at a point when they've been messing around with this and and they need to start breaking ground and construct the thing. Uh-huh. They just can't hold off any longer. So Stevens shows the board a letter from Marshall Field, the Chicago uh, retailer, uh, promising to give $100,000. And sort of on that basis, Joe actually makes the motion to go ahead and construct Turns out the letter was a forgery, and um, it's discovered by the trustees by by the time of they meet in their January meeting in 1954, the first meeting of 54 in January, and, in, and you look at the minutes, and they were supposed to meet with a, a faculty committee that day, and that's called off. They go into an executive session, which means only the president is there and just then the board members. It lasts all day. You know, all day being, you know, six, seven hours. Right. At the end of the day, Stevens is there and Joe has resigned. And the Actually, the chair of the board was trying to resign, but his colleagues convinced him at lunchtime that day to stay in the, stay in the chair. So Stevens is going to, they're going to give him some more time. And Joe is obviously furious about this. And Joe could not 
stand dishonesty, particularly dishonest business practices, uh-huh. which essentially that was. So he goes. And, uh, but by June, the board has changed its mind and they fire Stevens. So June of 54, first thing in a minute says, maybe Mr. Rosenfield will come back. <laughs> and he does. And so I put, so structure this in the book as, a, as one of the most critical moments, certainly in the recent history of the college, the most critical moment I think we've ever confronted. If Stevens had stayed and Joe had stayed away, where would we be? Um, Joe is the savior of the college in many ways, mm-hmm. and he's the very heart and soul of the college. And he comes back and Stevens leaves, and certainly it was time for Stevens to leave. Stevens' response to the board when confronted with his forgery says, well, we've got the building, haven't we? You know, we accomplished our goal. Right. <laughs> they didn't have the money. They were increased their debt. But that that's a big moment in the book. And I, you know, I, know, I knew Sam, Sam pretty well. and I mean, all the students felt they know Doc Sam. He was definitely a figure that you had, had to contend with. And, so Joe returns to the Board of Trustees where he, you know, continues to exert a powerful sway, um, and his investment acumen certainly helped the college grow its endowment incredibly over the years. Um, how did he, you know, gradually start to build the endowment, and then what were some of the big highlights in terms of, like, the the, the home runs that he and Warren hit over yeah. the years? Well, you, you would start with Intel. Bob Noyce, a graduate, 49 graduate of the college, uh, who clearly was a brilliant scientist and in, in the area of solid-state physics. Uh, he was introduced to transistors at Grinnell because we had a graduate who was in Bell Labs where the transistor was developed. And Bob uh, was introduced to transistor. Grant Gale did, did this, who was a close friend and mentor for Bob. So he that got him into solid-state physics. He went to MIT, got his PhD, and worked in, worked for Fairchild and other uh, organizations uh, as a scientist. And he had ideas and was thinking a little bit around the edges about starting his own business, becoming his own entrepreneur. And Joe and several of the board members took Bob under their wing and, and urged him to do that. They saw, they saw that potential that Bob Noyce could, in fact, be a good enough businessman as well as scientist. And uh, finally, after some, you know, several years of, and Bob was on the board of trustees at that point, so he was a colleague of Joe, he, he came to, the, to, to his, his key board members like, like Joe and like Sam Rosenthal from Chicago and said, I am going to start a business. Would you be interested in, in helping in the startup? And both Joe and, and Sam invested, and invested in this way. If we, if we make the money, it goes to the college. If we lose it, it's our loss. Uh-huh. And then some college funds went in so that Grinnell was a 10% contributor to the startup at Intel. And, of course, the rest is history. In a sense, Intel became one of the great um, manufacturers of chips. And Bob was probably the well, really a couple of people who invented the, the integrated circuit on uh-huh. the chip, and Bob's one of those. So you know, he made a great invention, and he managed to turn that invention into a great business. And the college made huge profits for its endowment out of Intel, 
Bob is actually when I was president in, in the 80s, he convinced the board, convinced me and the board that we should sell the entire stock. Bob was just so nervous that so much of the college's endowment was in Intel stock. Uh-huh. So we did sell it. And uh, an article in Money Magazine just a year before Joe died, so in 1999, I think, uh, the Zweig, the writer of the articles, estimated that Grinnell lost about a billion and a half dollars <laughs> or so by selling early, prematurely. So that's yeah. probably one of the great ideas we had, one of the bad ideas we uh-huh. had. So that uh, that was dramatic. And then, uh, uh, really it was a major factor in building the endowment was the purchase of WDTN, uh, the ABC network station in Dayton, Ohio. And that's an interesting story, which I'll try to tell quickly. Um, this came through Warren Buffett. Warren, who was watching for these kinds of things, saw, saw that Avco Company was selling its television stations. They had one in Cincinnati and one in Dayton. He was very interested in the Cincinnati station, and he, and he saw that the price was a really good price based on the revenues of the stations. It, it was it was kind of a fire sale uh-huh. of these stations. So definitely someone should buy them at the price that was being offered. Well, Cincinnati was snapped up quickly, but not Dayton. Warren figured out that he really wasn't free to buy it because he was a uh, director of the Washington Post. The Washington Post, I think, had already had owned four stations. The limit was five. If you were a director and you bought it, that was attached to uh, Washington Post. So he would have filled up their quota, and he didn't feel he had, could do that. Uh-huh. So he thought, good idea for me, it'd be a good idea for the college. Right. So he talked to Joe, and they cooked this up. And I was a board member then, and I sat through this meeting where Warren gave us a seminar on why this would be a good purchase. Most of us hadn't heard of it before, right at that. So on the moment, we decided to buy the station for $11 million, <laughs> using $2 million of the college's endowment and borrowing nine. And then while I was president, uh, they, these gurus, uh, our gurus on the board, decided it was time to sell, and we sold it for I think forty-six million. So uh-huh. it was a it was a huge, uh, just over five or six years. Yeah. Gain. And interestingly, we we followed Warren's and Joe's advice very easily and very quickly on the board. Such was our trust to those two. But what we discussed at great length was how to keep the students from trying <laughs> to run the station, because this was still in a time of of student activism uh-huh. uh, in the 70s. And uh, we knew the students, whoa, what a wonderful. We've got, I mean, think of what you'd think as right. a student. Here's a college-owned yeah. network station. Now let's really get into yeah. get, getting our views across to the public. Yeah, I've and, heard what students did on the radio. I can imagine what they would do at what the, they would the do TV. With, <laughs> so they, they cre- the board created a separate uh, entity uh, responsible to the board, but not the board directly to, to administer the station. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, in addition to his financial role on the board, I think it's important also to understand how Joe influenced the college in other ways, maybe less tangible than money, perhaps, but equally important by kind of steering them through changes like, like the shift to to coed dormitories, where um, you know his his pithy statement was enough to kind of convince people of of the legitimacy of the idea. Joe was. You know, he was one of the older board members, and of course by the time he finished, he's 96 when he died and still pretty involved, was the oldest. 
so you might think he might have the most retrograde notions, but he I think he moved quicker than almost anybody in understanding uh-huh. the students' generations as, as they flowed through the college. But it was 1968, and, and the administration has come to the board recommending we go to co-ed dorms. It was, it was not, as I recall, it wasn't total at that point. It was going to be some dorms will be co-ed, some, some wouldn't be. I know that was the case. They kept some single-sex dorms. Anyway, uh, that, that was really contentious, and I, I was not a board member then, but I've talked to people about that meeting. And it was contentious because a lot of people really believe in, in local parents. It's our responsibility to help these students learn how to live uh-huh. responsibly. And what do you do if you just turn them loose in dormitories? They're going to have sex all the time, et cetera, <laughs> or more than they are now or whatever. And uh, so they they weren't getting anywhere in, the, in this discussion. They were about 50-50 on those who wanted to support the administration and those who didn't. And Joe hadn't said anything. And then finally he just pipes up. He says, well, he said, I'm for it if they make it retroactive. <laughs> and, the play, and the room just dissolved in laughter. <laughs> it, it, it dissipated the, t- the tension, and they voted unanimously to support the administration. Uh, another one that I do remember very well, because I was on the board at the time, um, the drinking age had been reduced to, to 19 for a while. So most of our students were... Legit, I mean, legal, legal drinkers. Uh-huh. And so the college decided, we, student pushed for it, and the administration agreed that we should have a pub on campus. Yep. We had restrictions both in town and on the campus. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, went back to the founding of Grinnell that yep. wouldn't allow that. So we had to go to the city council and, you know, appeal that and so on to get the law changed. So that was a major shift, a major shift, not only legally and also socially. And it was Joe who made the motion to do that, and Warren who who seconded the motion. So uh, they 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 got it, uh-huh. uh, and Joe particularly, uh, and he really really cared about students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, all the while Joe's serving on the board, he's also incredibly involved in Des Moines public life. Um, can you just talk briefly about his contributions there? Because it you know as much as he impacted Grinnell. He also, you know, had a huge influence on the development of Des Moines. Yeah, that was, to me, something of a revelation. Uh, I didn't had no idea how much he, involvement he had in Des Moines. Michael Gartner, who for years was the editor of the, of the Register, then became head of NBC News, came back to the state, and now is the owner of the, of the Iowa Cubs. Uh-huh. He understands Des Moines probably as well as anybody. And he, and he thinks that Joe was the sort of um, conscience of Des Moines, the sort of heart of Des Moines. He taught an awful lot of people to be generous. Um, and and he, he credits Joe a lot for just the, the forward-looking development of Des Moines. Now, sp- specifically, the things you can point to, besides his involvement in this wonderful business, Yonkers, which was a huge part of Des Moines, but uh, he was the chief contributor to a number of Democratic politicians. Most importantly, Harold Hughes, who was a great governor of Iowa, was the primary donor to Harold Hughes and sort of sponsor of Harold Hughes. But John Culver and and, uh, Tom Harkin, uh, Tom Miller and so on, a cadre of Democratic leadership. Uh Joe was uh, an advisor to and funder of uh, those folks. He's responsible for uh, getting the Iowa 
minor league franchise in, in Des Moines. And he, made, he wasn't the only one, but he was the one who actually had raised quickly raised the money to get the stadium built uh-huh. uh, that, that required that. He was the biggest funder of Planned Parenthood in the, in the state of Iowa, by far, by far the big, biggest funder. And it was the one organization besides Grinnell College that would let them use his name mm-hmm. to help. In, in, in fundraising. Living History Farms, a really interesting museum of farming. Uh, he raised the money to ha- make that happen. Um, the World Food Prize, which we are noted for now in Iowa, was was endowed by John Ruin, a very close friend of Joe's. They would, and I can remember, he and John would have breakfast together at the Des Moines Club almost every day, and when I would have lunch with Joe once a month or so, I, John Ruin would come by and and we'd have a conversation and so uh-huh. on. They were very close, even though politically they were uh, diametrically opposed. Well, Joe suggested, and John accepted the suggestion, that he invest in Intel. And John made a ton of money in <laughs> Intel. And it's that money that endows now endows the World Food Prize. Uh-huh. So Joe's I- involved with that. Um, it, it, it just goes on and on and on. And even though he had this huge impact financially and through a lot of these organizations. You titled this book Mentor, and that's really a big part of Joe's legacy. And really the reason we have this book as well is the relationships he developed and the people he mentored. How did Joe become a mentor for so many people? Well, that's one fairly simplistic but I think accurate reason. Joe's only son uh, was killed in an auto accident in his senior year in high school. Uh Uh-huh. And Joe's wife was, some, some people told me she just never recovered from that. Yeah. So, and she died certainly, oh, it was seven or eight years after her son, but her life was in a way kind of blighted by, really blighted by that. So that was a huge amount of loss. When I knew Joe, he was a widower, had no children, and he never referred to any of that. I mean, his life yeah. was just totally private. But... Uh, the loss of that son, I think that was one of the stimulus for, or stimuli for his becoming a mentor, particularly for young men. Uh, the sponsor of this book, um, Jim County, and his partner created the ninth largest cable uh, television network in the United States. They were all over the country, not just in Iowa. And Joe, through Yonkers, he handled all of Yonkers' investments, was in was big part of the startup, about 50% of the startup. And then when this, it took a long time, particularly until satellites came along, uh, and, and you could really multiply the amount of program that you had on, on cable. I mean, cities didn't need cable so much. They could get the television out of the air, but rural areas mm-hmm. needed cable terribly badly. And so cable took off. But at the point when they were just about dead, Joe invested heavily in, in Heritage, which it was called, at 37 cents a share of the stock. The stock was almost worthless. We made a ton. He says later that he made more money out of that heritage stock than anything else because then they be, they blossomed very uh-huh. shortly after. So, so County thinks Joe, they wouldn't have had a business without Joe. Mm-hmm. So he thinks he owes everything, and that's why he wanted this biography to be written. So those two guys, um, he, he was a mentor for them. He was a mentor for Bob Noyce, obviously. Uh, the Bucks Bombs. Uh, Matthew and Martin Buxbaum were when they started they went from the grocery business into the shopping center business and then Joe soon got acquainted with them helped them get into the Des Moines market persuaded them to move to 
worked in Des Moines. Their organization was called General Growth. He was on the board of General Growth from the start. Those guys talked to him daily about advice. Both where should we go? Where should we stop a shop, start a shopping center? How should we how should we find the capital, the funding for this, and so on? And Joe was just intimately involved mm -hmm. with the Bucks Bombs. We have the Bucks Bomb Center on campus. Uh, as an, another recognition of that. So, uh, and then a woman who we really mentored was Jill June, the, the executive head of the uh, Planned Parenthood. And she she probably knew Joe intimately in, in terms of Joe, who was the person. And he would sometimes talk about his family with her. When I interviewed her, I got more of those kinds of insights than I got from anyone else. So uh -huh. that was a very close relationship, but it was definitely a mentoring relationship. So, uh, and I, I'm sure there are many more that, I'm, that aren't in the book or that I don't know about that, that he met. He mentored me uh -huh. as president uh, of the college. Um, anyway, they, they, it's it's everywhere. Yeah. I think in writing this book, you do a, a wonderful job of painting Joe and this portrait of, you know, this fascinating and really impactful man, but yet very private. And and it's it's an interesting and difficult task to maybe write a book about someone who is so so private and I think he had a rare combination of of self-confidence and humility that maybe contributed to that privacy as well. Fred Little said he was pathologically private and really that he was a doer um, content to let his actions speak for themselves and he never wanted anything named after him but finally a week before he died he agreed to let the college name a building after him uh, we now have the Rosenfield Center it's obvious that he was hugely influential not just at Grinnell but in Des Moines as well what do you see now when you look around Grinnell as the continued legacy of Joe here it's hard not to find it uh, <laughs> Well, I, I, my tutorial met at the library today, and uh, Chris Jones, who's the archivist, was the one who led that session, and he he very wisely inserted a tour around the library in that uh, part of what he did, and so we physically saw a lot of the library. We were down uh, in the room where all of our uh, DVDs and, and uh, discs, CDs are, and so on, and he just commented, he said, you know, we're so lucky because we have the budget to do all of these things. Uh -huh. Or we have, he talked about digitizing resources. We have the budget to digitize what we want to digitize. Most colleges don't. He just, everywhere you go, you see the fact that we are now a well-endowed, very well-endowed institution, and we have funds to do things. Yeah. Not that they're unlimited, they aren't, and that would be the greatest mistake we could possibly make to assume it's unlimited. But Joe wanted to make the college impregnable, and I think we're close to, close to being that way. Uh, we build these wonderful facilities, and we borrow, we raise money, but we're also using endowment income. In fact, our endowment's so large that if you're going to, by law, spend 5% of the earnings, there's money left over for doing physical projects, but Joe would Joe would turn over in his grave. He saw we're using endowment for buildings. He <laughs> death on death on that. He wanted to protect that endowment, and he knew that we in the administration wanted to get these buildings paid for. It was easy to try to reach into the endowment to do it. Um, our salaries are good. We have think of financial aid. Over fifty million dollars of financial aid every year. 
that's probably the greatest contribution of the endowment is that it allows us to be, I think, among our universe of perhaps 30 or so outstanding coeducational liberal arts colleges, we are the most accessible of any of them mm-hmm. with the least amount of loan, most amount of grant, least amount of tuition coming back to the college because we're discounting it in the form of financial aid. And uh, so we have a lot, a lot of students who do not come from wealth, and yet this is a very expensive college. If you look at that, you know, it's an unbelievable price. The base price, yeah. Price. Um, we couldn't do that without the endowment. Um, so we're getting used to it now, but you know I'm I'm familiar with a much less well endowed college uh-huh. from my student days on through my when I was president we were doing well but we weren't anywhere near where we are today with respect to endowment strength. Uh, there are you know it isn't a it isn't a an unmixed blessing. It's harder to raise money. I mean my generation looks at the college now. Why would they need my money? Uh-huh. Uh, it's so much wealthier than when we were here and yeah. so on and better off. Quality of the faculty, it's pretty hard to find a bad faculty member, Cornell. <laughs> you might find one who's not having a good year or something, but no, um, we can afford to pay the salaries and provide all this support. That's important. Research support, lab support, and so on. Um, leave support, all of these things we can afford to do that allow our college, the faculty to be much more productive as scholars than they used to be. As I say, it's hard to look around and not see the impact. Of yeah. It. And that's Joe. Uh-huh. Uh, not to say we wouldn't be a good college now. We would be, I think, and we would have built the endowment. It would have happened somehow, but not like it is. I mean, it was just we owe everything to Joe. Uh-huh. And uh, you mentioned he might be squirming in his grave thinking about using the endowment to 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 fund our buildings, but he also maybe would have squirmed at the thought of someone writing a book about him. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> but I think he'd be happy to know that it was you who penned it. Um, and it certainly is a story worth telling, and I've enjoyed reading it and talking to you about it. So thank you, George. Thank you, Ben. It's been fun to do this. That was George Drake discussing the life and legacy of Joe Rosenfield. He recently published a biography of Joe called Mentor. You can find a link to the book on our webpage, where you'll also find some pictures from Joe's life and clippings from his student publications. For those of you who are in Grinnell, there will be an event on Tuesday, December 3rd, honoring Joe, 7.30 p.m., naturally, in the Joe Rosenfield Center, room 101. While Joe may be one of the most influential figures in the college's history, and well worthy of a podcast episode, another Grinnell grad from his family, his sister, Louise Noun, was notable in her own right. She served as the president of the Iowa ACLU, as well as a slew of other contributions and responsibilities throughout the state of Iowa. Noun lived a remarkable life, and you can read more about her on the website. So, if you're listening to this on Thanksgiving, and even if you're not, I'd like to take a moment to take the best out of a holiday with a fraught history. Recognizing the history of our country's relationship to Native peoples is just the first step, and we're far from achieving that. I'm just starting to work on a story about the relationship between Grinnell and the Meskwaki people, whose settlement is just 30 minutes away from here. I'm looking forward to reckoning with that relationship soon, but for now, to all of you who will celebrate in some fashion, and even those who don't, I hope you can take a moment now to pause, reflect, and be grateful. Wherever you are on this day, listening to this podcast, I hope you're doing well, and I'm sending you a big audio hug.
Next time, we're talking with Evelyn and Will Freeman, the longtime Grinnell track and cross-country coaches, as they enter their last season of coaching the Pioneers after almost 40 years. That's next time on All Things Grinnell. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Poddington Bear. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay grateful, Grinnellians. Thank you.